Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. This episode 384 on the network. Uh, we're closing in on 60,000 subscribers this week. This show could put us over the top, Jim. We're 20 away. Good. Want to want to thank those subscribers. You guys know what to do. Five stars. Write some great comments. Uh, that'll help us battle the podcast world analytics, just like they do in Major League Baseball. To Blackout Coffee. Coffee this month. You can brag to all your friends. Coffee this month is on the Hall of Famer. You put in an order with Blackout Coffee. Type in. Actually, it will be automatically in your order if you follow the prompt online. But if it's not, type in Jim K, all capital letters with the number 20 after it. Jim K 20, all caps. You'll get 20% off your purchase. Pass it out. It's a great holiday gift for people. And speaking of holiday gifts, our good friend Ted Kubiak, our very first guest on the network um, and a, a loyal listener, listens to every show. He's got two great books out for your baseball lover. Old School, it's his baseball career and kind of gives a perspective on where he believes the game has gone. And his fielding manual, How to Field a Ground Ball, uh, the most comprehensive approach to fielding I've seen out there. Totally different than what all you guys are watching on YouTube. Thank God. Um, Thank God for that. But uh, with that, uh, we got a loaded show today, Jim. Welcome back to your show. Well, thank you. I I think, well, you know, I had the uh, books by Ted written down on my roster here, uh, kind of our log. But uh, since you mentioned that, I I should say immediately, you know, Ted sent me a copy of the books. And I also had him send a a couple to uh, Tucker Frawley, who is the head of minor league or major league, all of the uh, minor leagues infielders for the Minnesota Twins. And uh, so Tuck sent me a picture of a glove that he did that I think Ted explained in his manual where he's got little objects that force you to catch the ball in the pocket of the glove. And, uh, and then uh, Tucker said he didn't realize, but his older brother played minor league baseball and Ted was his manager in high A and uh, just loved him. So yeah, I, I think getting those books, I mean, you talk about fighting the modern method, nobody fielded the ball more what I would call fundamentally perfect than Ted Kubiak. And I mentioned this before when we played games in the old Kansas City Park and the visiting clubhouse was up on a hill uh, down the third baseline, uh, we would, uh, I would have the infielders watch him in infield practice field balls. It was like poetry in motion. And now, of course, we have a lot of the uh, Latino uh, shortstops with a lot of athletic ability that played on very rocky fields in their home countries. And so you'll see them play the ball to the side, play with a little more flair. Uh, and that's good. They still get it done. But to, to, to learn how to field a ground ball as a young infielder, uh, you do yourself a favor by by getting Ted's book on uh, how to field a ground ball. And then I found it interesting, too, I, a lot of similarities with his experience in his book, Old School, versus uh, uh, sort of the way my career evolved and, uh, and developed. Yeah. He's, he has some similarities to your thoughts on proper release uh, that he uses with infielders, but you use that with pitchers as well, right? Yeah. I, I, I always thought the best thing for a pitcher, of course, we have the uh, – Jim Colonel, who we've talked a lot about, really has the scientific information and video to back it up. Uh, the perfect way to release a baseball and uh, try to get your arm in positions where you can avoid injury. Uh, and I think by rolling a ground ball, which Ted suggested as infielders, when you roll a ground ball to someone, and they pick it up and they, as imaginary, uh, imagining they're going to throw it to first base, they take a little hop step and the arm gets out of the glove. 
Uh, the ball gets out of the glove and up in the throwing position, and that's the same thing you do as a pitcher. So that fielding a ground ball drill also is a good drill for learning the proper release for a pitcher. Yeah. And he, he, he uh, like yourself, uh, you, you weren't too bad a fielder yourself out there, but uh, he's got the gold standard. I mean, footwork is the yeah, key. I, I, the, difference, the difference between fielding for a shortstop and a pitcher, see, as a, as a pitcher, I don't really think you have to have the skill that a middle infielder has to have. You have to have anticipation and reaction. The big thing is anticipation, and it's kind of sickening to watch the game today and see that after a pitcher releases the ball, it's like a surprise to him if the ball gets hit back at him. They're they're in no position whatsoever. They're getting hit. They're getting injured. They're missing balls that they should be able to field. But uh, the, the way I was trained so fortunately by, of course, watching Bobby Shantz and then the drills we had in spring training, uh, immediately after you released the ball, you thought of yourselves as, as a fifth infielder. And if you don't anticipate that that pitch might be hit back at you, uh, you're probably, it's going to be just luck that you're able to flag it down because you're not going to anticipate it. So you need more anticipation and reflexes uh, to field as a pitcher. But the skills and the footwork, they come into play more with a middle infielder, particularly a shortstop, because you have that long throw to make. And if you watch good shortstops like Ted was, and if you watch Derek Jeter and uh, some of the shortstops of of today, uh, footwork is so important for a middle infielder. You won't find a a good middle infielder that doesn't have very, very uh, quick footwork, proper footwork. And and you know that from playing the game as well. Yeah, we, we I think people don't recognize that as much now because we're seeing these guys, they're they're bigger, stronger athletes in terms of their look, may do things a little bit more uh more I guess quicker with more power. But yeah, the feet are feet are where it's at. The feet will get you there. I couldn't agree. Yeah. Um, and that release, uh, you don't have to have a strong arm, but if your feet put you in the right position, I always said it should be a political a political movement called fight for your feet, no matter what sport it is, uh, basketball, yeah. baseball. Um, the, the feet uh, the feet carry you. So I, I agree with you 100%. Well, we, uh, we, we, we did see a, uh, a very good player in our game. That's an understatement. And a very uh, great franchise, a storied franchise, try to make their next move. Uh, kind of dominated the trade talk and the free agent talk for the entire winter meeting. So uh, I know you had a, you've, you've had a lot to say on that. The Dodgers, I didn't realize it until you put it in the show notes. And I guess it's the right word. The last legitimate World Series was 1988, right, with Hershiser, the Kirk Gibson run, and Tommy Lasorda. The other right, two, Hersh- yeah, they you know they won the uh, they won the 81 World Series. When actually, as a member of the Cardinals, we had the best overall record. But we just missed winning the first division and just missed winning the second. That's the year that we had that 50-day baseball work stoppage when the owners were trying to break the Players Association and take away free agency, which was never going to happen. And as a result of that 81 strike, I think there are still some fans that left the game and didn't return uh, because of that. And then they, uh, then the Dodgers won the COVID World Series in 2020, which was also a shorter one. So they go back, uh, I guess that would be 35 years since they really won a legitimate World Series when, uh, thanks to Oral Hershiser in the days when uh, starters were very important to a team, unlike uh, the case today. But it was a combination of Gibson's famous home run and Hershiser's pitching, and they ended up uh, really upsetting the A's. The A's were a heavily favored team. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a long dry spell, and uh, I kind of think of it like home improvement. We bought a a home here that needed a lot of repair work in uh, in South Georgia, restoration work, and if you just keep painting it with money. Uh, the problems go away and it turns out great. And that's what the Dodgers are doing to their franchise. They got Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, and now they got Otani. And I, I think if I read the numbers right, they have about 840 some million dollars of deferred money uh, that they're going to pay these guys. And the big news, of course, with Otani signing is 
he feels, I think, comfortable he can live on $2 million a year. So he'll defer the other 600 and some million. But the issue is they defer it. And if it's, my understanding is correct, they do not uh, have to apply that 700 million and be subject to the luxury tax. And that's wrong because yeah. the purpose of the central fund, the luxury tax was to force the big market teams that spend a lot of money to pay some tax, they don't have a salary cap, but you have the luxury tax and you pay that into a fund and it is doled out to the smaller market teams based on, I think, their revenue. And so what the teams like the Dodgers have figured out a way to, to get around that is they're deferring all the money. Well, if I were a small market owner, I don't know if it came up at the owners meetings, but uh, that kind of defeats the purpose. You're getting right back to, you know, the rich teams get all the players and they win and the small market teams can't compete. So this deferred money is almost feeding that kind of issue. I think there was a, st a strategy to the timing of when that was released. I think the, the details got released right after the winter meetings were over. So they may have, uh, their timing on everything may have been deliberate in that regard. So they weren't cornered by all the small market, small market teams. But so, so they pay 2 million a year for nine years, then 600 and, 82 million in year yeah. 10. I would assume they'd have to pay a luxury tax in year 10, right? I'm not sure how that works. It's a, we need a, we need to get a, a, an attorney on here, maybe Nez Bolello, Otani's agent, who uh, has really come to the front since being a minor league player and, and uh, taken over as an agent, just like Scott Boris was. They found out, well, they couldn't hit the curveball, but they could represent players and they're making more money than most players do. So they might have the answer. Uh, to those questions. But uh, yeah, I think uh, from a player standpoint, it's, it's smart. It's, uh, it's awfully nice that you can defer that money. It, it just, it blows my mind when I just sit for a moment quietly and think about when my good friend, Dick Allen signed a three-year deal with the White Sox in 1972. He was traded for Tommy John from the Dodgers from Tommy went from the White Sox to the Dodgers and Dick came to Chicago and the White Sox signed him to a three-year deal for $675,000, a year. And we had already raised our eyebrows when, uh, when the first uh, like $200,000 player came along. I think Seaver is one of the highest paid guys. And we thought, well, this game, the, the owners are going to go broke. They can't afford to pay this kind of money. And then, and then it went to Nolan Ryan, I think, was the first million-dollar player in 1980. Then Kirby Puckett went to $2 million for a brief period of time. And along came Sandberg and, and Bonds, who went to 6 and 7. And then Scott Boris fooled Tom Hicks and the Texas Rangers for years when he, when he ended up uh, talking them into a 10-year $250 million deal. And then away it went. And here we are at 700 million. That is just, and, and people rightly so will say, well, how, how in the world can they afford that? A guy's not worth that much. Well, I think the analogy I've read is Tom Cruise gets 35 million a picture. You know, it probably takes him six months to make a picture, a movie or something. But, you know, the marketing value, uh, I think for the Dodgers and for the game of baseball is going to be a big plus. I mean, now, all of a sudden, Otani is, is uh, like monopolizing the sports pages. And that's good for the sport of baseball, for the industry. Yeah. As much as those of us that played in a different era don't really like the style of play in today's era, there are 70 million people that went to games last year. So obviously, there are a lot of people that do like it. Granted, I think half of those go to sit and look at their cell phone and tell their fans or their friends, wherever they are, what they're doing and what kind of food they're eating. But uh, there are 70 million people that go. So there is a lot of interest there, but uh, uh, I think this is only going to enhance uh, the market value of, of every baseball. When I, when Otani goes into play in another city, uh, you can imagine it. It reminds me a little, and I was still an active player then, 
with Fernando Mania. You remember Fernando Mania? Yeah, I was, uh, gosh, that was 80, like early 80s, I think 81. And so I, was, I, uh, I got to know for and I played during that era, but that was a big deal when he was scheduled to pitch. Um, the stands were full, whether it was at home or on the road. Uh, I remember we he was pitching against us in St. Louis, and I think the game got started a little late. We had like uh, 40,000 sellout for Fernando, and that I think is what's going to happen with Otani. You know, he will be like uh, the Michael Jordan of, uh, of baseball, where you didn't necessarily go to see the team play, but you wanted to see Michael. And here, the same case. I mean, the Dodgers are star-studded with Freeman and Betts, and uh, now they add Otani. So, but but the big attraction is going to be to so to go and see uh, Otani, and rightly so. He's a he's just a, a very special, gifted athlete that uh, we haven't seen before. Yeah. There, there is a risk, though, right? Two surgeries now. He's well, only going to be. So, I mean, and, and you got to believe the Dodgers have done their homework. Uh, Neil At- L. Atriche is the orthopedic surgeon that did this second surgery on his arm, and he's also the Dodgers doctor. So, you got to believe that the the injuries they were vetted very, very meticulously to to think that he's going to be sound. But there's no guarantee with the pitching arm. Sure, you know, anytime that arm comes up above your shoulder. Uh, there's a risk. So to tie up that kind of money, granted, he's just going to be a hitter uh, the first year and then healing from the surgery, he'll be able to pitch in 2025 and kind of taking a page out of what we've talked about with Ted Simmons theory, uh, which is very sound for today's game of baseball, where the starting pitcher basically becomes extinct and your most important pitcher is the guy at the end of the game. And and I think, uh, I don't know if the Dodgers are thinking that way, but certainly if I was in charge, I would think about making Otani the closer in 2025. Uh, yeah, it's, it certainly lends itself to Ted's theory that this could be, maybe this could be our first look at it. They need to call yeah, Ted. Somebody, somebody's going to get ahead of the curve. And I'm very careful uh, to, to stay out of the specifics because as Ted told me, now you stay in your lane, you know, don't try to explain it because right. we'll get it wrong. He has to explain the specific details. But I think if some uh, some organization, I've exchanged uh, emails with Derek Falvey, who I have a nice relationship with. He's the head of baseball ops for the Twins. And he actually was thinking about this sort of, uh, you know, style of organizing the pitchers during covid when they came back because he didn't think starters would be in condition to pitch, you know, five, six innings. So there was a, there was some thinking about going, you know, right now the starting pitcher averages, I think four and two thirds, somewhere in there. I think the day is coming when if a starter can pitch a perfect three innings, uh, that's good. You're done for the day. And, you know, it's surprising that my, my favorite coach, Johnny Sane, way ahead of his time. He told me in the 60s when we had a four-man rotation and some teams were with expansion, they were having trouble getting that fourth starter. So you can imagine today with a five-man rotation, some teams go to six. So he said back in the 60s, the day is coming when that fourth starter, they're going to split it between three pitchers. I said, really? He said, yes, and the day is coming when a pitcher that can pitch one, one, two, three inning is going to be valuable to a team. I said, John, you got to be kidding. You mean I can just go out there and retire the side one, two, three and be an important part of the team? Well, you know, here we are in 2023 going to 2024, and those pitchers are already showing how important they are. Yeah, I I think you're right on the money there. We – some of these guys, maybe people didn't pay attention to them back then, but certainly come to fruition now. And, and you know, free agency, I, I see a lot of people in and around the game. They get excited about these little, you know, so-and-so. I heard a rumor that, you know, this guy's going to sign there. None of it's substantiated, but free agency has caused a certain buzz around the game. But um, it, it's a double-edged sword, as, as you, you say. It's, it's also, I think, caused maybe the game to lose some popularity, too. Yeah, I think become, you know, and I don't know where the, 
I keep trying to find out really the demographics. I mean, some of the demographics say it's uh, <clears throat> in baseball, the, the majority of the, the audience is the older white people that are retired and, you know, like me. And you do see, you do hear from a lot of the people in my age bracket and, and even a little bit younger that, oh, we missed the game when we could collect the trading cards and we knew every year the lineups were going to be about the same. Uh, you know, our, our baseball was so popular in our country right after World War II. That's when my dad took me to see my first games in 1946 because the war ended and all the players came back and, you know, football, ba uh, basketball, any of those sports were not really that popular then. So baseball was the most popular. Now, the money wasn't much, but here today, baseball with a lot of people ha has lost its appeal but yet teams uh, are finding that they're spending more and more money to, to load up their roster and try to win a championship. Uh, right along with those lines with a starting pitcher, what's baffling to me, and I'm happy for the starters, like uh, Kyle Gibson, Sonny Gray, who I know both uh, pitch for the Twins, they signed some very lucrative uh, contracts. I think Sonny's at $25 million a year with the Cardinals, and yet percentages say – that he's not going to pitch more than five innings. Yeah. So you're paying a lot more money and you're getting a lot less production out of your starters. And who's going to pitch that? Sure, you can find a closer. Uh, the Twins have a good one and Duran and a lot of teams have good closers. I mean, there's some teams out there looking for a pickup Josh Hader right now, but with his violent motion, I don't know how long he's going to hold up physically. But uh, – They'll get a closer, but who do they have pitching that sixth, seventh, and eighth innings? And those really are where you need your your better pitcher. So who's going to be the first team to take their starting rotation and figure out a way uh, to, to ration it out so that, say, with the Twins, Pablo Lopez, well, today, if we have the lead, you're going to pitch innings six and seven. And then Joe Ryan's going to pitch the eighth, and then here comes Duran to close it out in the ninth. Well, then uh, Pablo's going to need a couple days off, and then you go to your next guy. So it's going to be a matter of, uh, which I went through as a reliever, it's going to be a matter of training differently in spring training, maybe even in the offseason, uh, to suddenly become a one or two inning reliever versus a starter. If I were, uh, say, Otani, they were going to make him a closer, I would talk to John Smoltz. I would talk to Dave Rigetti. I would talk to Dennis Eckersley. These guys were all number one starting pitchers. They were, and yeah. eventually, uh, their teams found out that they were more valuable as nine inning pitchers, ninth inning pitchers. So they're the guys that could give you firsthand information. Uh, I did that, but not to the degree that they did. Uh, I did a little of everything, but not at the level that they did. So you could you could pick the brain of those guys and say, how did you train yourself in spring training? I, I think I have a pretty good idea. You know, you're going to try to. You're going to try to pitch every other day, maybe throw an inning every other day, and then another two days rested, pitch two innings. So you're going to do like a sprinter, little short spurts in order to get ready for the season instead of as starters, we would go three innings, three innings, then five innings and seven innings. And then you would hope by the end of spring training, uh, you may have gone eight or nine innings one time. Those, those days are gone now, but that's, that's the kind of training that if you were going to become a reliever uh, that has to be implemented. And theoretically they, they could throw more innings doing that than maybe as a starter every four days. Cause they, you know, if they're throwing two innings every other day or two, two, one, they're going to be, they'll be getting five, six innings a week. Maybe that'll, maybe the clubs will start getting more of their money's worth out of these pitchers. Yeah. Well, well, Ted will, Ted will give you chapter and verse on exactly how many innings, how many pitchers you need and how many innings they each could pitch. Cause he's got a formula that I think uh, if some team chooses to, uh, to get ahead of the curve, uh, that would be the way to go. I mean, and here I am saying that when I am all for, as, as baseball, is they want to get the star starting pitcher matchup back where you, you came and you saw, well, we got Scherzer going against Verlander tonight. 
So now I say, of course, I, my, my dream game would be to go see Mike Cuellar pitch against Jamie Moyer. They'd hook up two guys that you could read the label on their fastballs going up to home plate, but it was fun watching them destroy the hitter, uh, timing of the hitter. So I'd buy a ticket to see that matchup. But we know now that as much as Major League Baseball would like that, as long as the as long as the propeller heads and the numbers guys in in the different departments are going to dictate how the game should be played, uh, they're banging their head against the wall because teams are not going to let starting pitchers go through a lineup three times, eventually not even two times. Yeah, I, I think our audience knows I, I kind of stand with you on this regard with the pitching. But I'll, 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 I'll tell you, I'm, I'm curious to I, – I, I love math as much as the next person. I'm curious to, to hear – Ted's uh, theory, because there is a finite number of innings that a team pitches because they're yeah. you know, nine inning games. And I'm curious to hear how it worked because he's obviously you've spoken well of him. He's a Hall of Famer. He's had a great career. Switch, switch hitting catcher. Um, teams were always winning. I, I, I would love to ask him if he would. Uh, you wouldn't need me on that show. Ted could he take the whole show explaining in great detail how that would work. I'd have to see if he'd like to be your guest one day. Well, yeah, you on too, but I, I don't think you need me either just to turn on the, uh, the pie. I'd introduce him, introduce you, and just turn him loose, let him talk. I, I'd be curious. It'd probably be a – well, I bet you a lot of people would be curious because it's it's a little bit of a it's, – it's a twist on, on a system that seems to be a little bit broken right now and needs some, some thinking, and it's not the way we necessarily would think about it, but it's different. I have not heard anybody speak to that oh. yet. So I, I like smart, and, and I, I know you've spoken – about Ted and he's a, he's a thinker and uh, oh, yeah, you know, I, I've listened, I've listened to him. Boy, he gets intense about it. He was on with Brian Kenny briefly uh, a couple weeks ago and he texted me, he said, be sure to watch that. And he, you know, he touched on it, but he didn't really have the time to get into the great detail that I've heard him. But uh, I don't even want to touch trying to explain all the details of what he would do, but I'm going to text him and see if he'd like to be on uh on the show one day and just to give him the mic and say, here it is. Tell us how this plan would work. I I've gotten so many, uh, emails, direct messages in regards to just that small portion of the show. And we talked about that the other day. Um, and I, I also very cautious about explaining it. I explained the real basic of what I come, I came to understand through you, but when pressed to go deeper, I, I took the, the route that you said, I said, I do not know it deep enough. I didn't come out. I didn't, Create this. This is Ted Simmons. So yeah, I think he'd. We. I think we'd get a lot of. Uh, we'd get a lot of listens that week, without a doubt. Well, I'm going to pursue that. Okay. Um. You know. I. And you touched on the contracts. The maybe the the way pitchers are used. We talk about that. Uh. You know, week to week in terms of what what the commissioner wants and what we want is the same. It sounds like we want that star to star matchup. Um. Money's obviously played into it, TV rights, gambling. And I got this from a boxing promoter, believe it or not. I loved boxing growing up, and I have i can't follow it anymore. There's so many champions. There's so much. It's not the same as it used to be. But we, we've long since passed that golden era of boxing, and, and I think we would agree probably the same with baseball. Um, how much does gambling played into that? How much does TV rights? We are reaching more people than ever, I would say, with baseball. However, have we not lost that true hungry fighter like they have in boxing, the same in baseball? Well, probably. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that because you're so much younger than I am. But the, the guy that he and I just talked boxing by the hour was Bill Parcells. He used yeah. to hang out down at Stillman's gym and uh, watch guys like Thomas Hearns and uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and then go to the fights at Madison Square Garden. So when I was a kid with black and white TV – uh, the Gillette uh, fight of the week and Motor City fights. You're right. Uh, that was something we really looked forward to is the, uh, you know, and, and the Joe Lewis is Rocky Marciano oh, yeah. and came along Sugar Ray Leonard and Joe Frazier. And uh, of course, Muhammad Ali really uh, transformed that uh, the, the interest in boxing or certainly amped it up a lot, but uh, I, I guess you would say, yeah, that's that's true in in baseball. I think because of all the free agencies and the trades, you don't have that one 
you know, if you mentioned the middleweight champion back uh, or welterweight, whatever, you know, you could immediately say Carmen Basilio, Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, yeah. Ezra Charles, Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano. Uh, you, you can't you can't identify them as much anymore as you did in yesteryear. I grew up in upstate New York, which customado territory. So, sure. As my dad raised me as a as a baseball player, basketball, but I heard probably twice as many stories on boxing. Uh, met probably more boxers or former boxers than than baseball players growing up because they all lived and were around there. So, um, right the the my very first recollection of boxing, um, I knew all the stories of the guys that you you mentioned and watched old videos of it. Loved the footwork. Um, I did footwork on boxing to to train. Never got hit in the face though, which my my mom wouldn't let happen. But uh, Ray Ray Boom Boom Mancini and his relationship with his dad I, that was my first recollection of yeah. boxing, where I got into a, a fighter that I followed. Well, I think Floyd Patterson lived up in that area. Yeah, they all trained up there with with right. Gus in, in yeah. the Catskills. Yeah, that was a that was a very popular sport. I mean, it was one of the few sports that, you know, a couple times a week was uh, was on TV. Uh, but yes, I, I think that's kind of lost its luster, and in terms of those individual champions, like uh, like baseball has has lost lost the fans that like to see, you know, the same players on the same team every year, and that's where free agency, I think, was a double edged sword. I, I wish that the owners would have been a little more compliant with saying, hey, we, we've got to alter this. We can't just own a player for life. We have to give him a chance to move where he wants to play. And they didn't. And as a result, uh, they got fooled. They didn't think they'd lose that case in 1976, the famous Peter Seitz ruling. Uh, but they did. And that's what opened the floodgates. And that's what's caused all the the, the movement amongst the, the players year after year. And, uh, you know, I think teams lose a little of that or fans lose a little bit of interest because they, they can't keep track of where different guys are playing. I see even the trading cards, you know, you see the latest trading card they're coming out. Tops has an old Bowman's uh, set of cards. Bowman's B-O-W-M-A-S was a trading card years ago in the fifties. They now have one coming out with both Tom Brady and Paul Skeens, the number one draft pick of the Pirates. They have those two on the same card. So they'll start to market that. Now, I don't know. Paul Skeens doesn't listen to our show, I'm sure. But for those of you who don't know that name, he is the number one draft pick uh, last year. Got a ton of money up front with the Pirates. So they obviously have plans for him to be their ace. Well, I saw a photocopy of that trading card and his autograph was on it. Now, if that is his autograph, I wish Harmon Killebrew could come back to life and give him a good talking to. You could not in a hundred years guess whose signature that might be. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of scribbles. And so why would I go to a show and pay money to get a, an autograph from my favorite player. If I got home and said, who is that? I got to figure out who signed it. Yeah. Yep. I think your, your thoughts on that are, you know, just like it is with, was with your game meticulous, you know, take pride in it, slow down, you know, think about the the fan over there, but yeah, yeah I think they, this, the, I, I don't know if kids are conscientious enough and I laugh at my children. They're around that same age. I said, if us adults ever want to take back the world from you guys, all we have to do is write it in cursive. You guys won't understand what we're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you have to cut them a little slack because in this day of, you know, all you're doing is uh, texting and, and emailing is you, you really haven't uh, uh, learned the cursive writing. I know when I go to these autograph shows, the, the fans really, uh, they really like the fact, oh, we like you older guys because we can understand your name we can read your name you write it so clearly and uh that doesn't happen as much with the uh with the current players i guess because they don't really write much yeah they, they they don't know how to i guess but yeah i, I think it's a it, even though we reach so many more people now i think there's a disconnect uh with the players and the fans probably unlike what the the connection you guys had when you played because 
Um, even the writers, right? They rode on the trains. They traveled with you. They were more accessible. They were part oh, yeah. of your lives every day. You were, you were touchable by everybody. Right. Yeah, it's a different. And uh, I was sitting around with my buddies down here in South Georgia and talking about Otani's contract. And, you know, the logical thing that always comes, oh, I bet you were playing. wish you were playing today. I said, no, you know, I really don't. I mean, I don't know what it would be like to have a $700 million contract, but I am so happy that I grew up in the era that I grew up in and that I played in the era that I played in. And uh, I still love the game, the traditional game of baseball, and I'll do everything I can to help uh, kids, uh, you know, throw the ball the proper way and stay injury free and hope that they realize their dream and get to the big leagues. Uh, But I have no interest in the style of the game, the way it's played today. I mean, uh, I can't imagine knowing what I know from being a starting pitcher and how satisfying it is to get those last three outs by yourself and, and uh, shake hands with everybody at the dugout. We didn't go out in the field and celebrate, but I can't imagine growing up today what it would be like to say, well, boy, if I can just reach a hundred miles an hour and sign a contract, I can pitch three innings a week and I might earn $20 million a year. Might even all have to pitch two innings a week. Knowing what I know, that would not appeal to me at all. I mean, part of the appeal when we were kids of playing in the big leagues was to play and compete. We had no idea what the money was. You just wanted to play and compete against the best. And just going in there and pitching one inning just doesn't really feel like you're you're competing that much. You're just, you know, one very small part of a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. And I, I know Otani dominated our conversation today with trades and, and uh, the rumors out there. Were there any other players out there that caught your eye or that you wanted to chat about? I know the Dodgers aren't done. They're they're trying to get the Rays to trade them Tyler Glass now uh, to get another pitcher in that rotation. Yeah, there's, you know, I think they have to fill up the pages on MLB.com. So they're speculating, you know, on Blake Snell. Yep. I mean, Otani's contract is, I don't think, is going to impact those other contracts, but uh, they're just going to hold out as long as they can, uh, the, the free agents, to see how many bids they can get and keep up in the ante. But, uh, yeah, Snell is up there at the top. It looks like Jordan Montgomery might go back to Texas. Uh, you got a couple of more minor, minor as far as we're concerned. But so when you read where uh, a player left – who's the left-hand reliever that's re-signed with the Tigers, I think, for $4.5 which we kind of look at that like it's chump change. Where right. I think it's Chafin, yeah. the, uh, the lefty reliever, who's got a quirky motion. He's kind of a street, free-spirited guy. Well, that's a big deal for him, get a contract for $4.5 That's twice what my career earnings were for 25 years. So uh, that's still a big deal, but uh, – I think just right now it's a lot of speculation. We don't know what's going on uh, behind the scenes because the agents will try to wait as long as they possibly can. Uh, but certainly, somebody's going to have to uh, somebody's going to have to bend and break and uh, and make a decision here because you don't want to go into spring training or even if a little bit a little bit before spring training and not know what your needs are, what your roster is going to be. Well, you mentioned as far as the money, like Otani felt like he could survive on two million a year. I kind of chuckled. Um, you know, good. He's 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 uh he's scrapping by there with two million. The, the Giants signed the kid Jung Ho Lee uh, from Korea. Uh, the yeah, album. well, we're we're getting more and more. You know, and the the talent and the work ethic, boy, I'll tell you, it's when I saw Ichiro, and of course, one of my favorites was Hideki Matsui. I would love to have lunch with Hideki and, and start talking about Otani and Yamamoto and these other players, because Hideki over there was known as Godzilla. I yeah. mean, he was like the Babe Ruth of Japan, before, right after Sadaharo oh, was, of course, for years. But uh, we're seeing more and more international, uh, international talent, and particularly from the Asian players. Why and and I this may be an unfair question to ask because uh, I'm asking it to generalize, but I just finished a book on Sadahara O. I was intrigued by, I had never found anything on him. I was intrigued by his hitting style and the hitting style of the Japanese players as they've come through and entered Major League Baseball, like Ichiro. 
And I finally found a book on him. It was, it was phenomenal. Uh, talked about, really in depth about his upbringing, how it affected, how he approached the game of baseball. Being a baseball player was not prestigious uh, by his family. They wanted him to be an academic like the rest of his, his uh, siblings. But he had a teacher that was almost Zen-like, uh, that was not accepting of his social behaviors, was not accepting of his approach to the game, and really got, uh, I liken it to like when, when the really great archers, when they're shooting at a target, they're not trying to hit the center of the target. They've reached a point where they're trying to hit the center of themselves, not to get philosophical there, but um, yeah. what, what makes their style of play just, um, I guess, so fundamental, so uh, beautiful to watch? Well, I, I think it, it's the discipline that we see, I mean, you, you will not see, of course, we don't see any Asians in the NFL, but if we did, you wouldn't see any Japanese uh, wide receivers doing dances in the end zone, like right. these childish kids do. And we, it makes me the only, the, the next football game I watch will be the Super Bowl, And the last football game I watch in 2024 will be the Super Bowl. Maybe depending on who's in it, but I'm getting so tired of watching those antics. But yeah, when you see, the Ichiro's and the Hideki Matsui's, and now we're we're gonna we've seen it from Otani. I mean, their discipline, their pride in the game, and their humility. You know, you you just don't see them drawing attention to themselves like we're seeing so much of our American athletes in all sports. And I, I think there's a there's something about that in the uh, in the Japanese culture. That, you know, I, I just one of the most touching scenes was in Hideki Matsuyama won the Masters and his caddy took the flag out of the 18th, uh, the cup out of 18, which they're allowed to keep the flag. And he bowed to the course, which was such a sign of respect, the respect they have for the game. And, and I think that's what's kind of lost with with some of the players that we have. Uh, but you you'll never see. Uh, You'll never see a uh, a Japanese or I think any Asian player call attention to themselves after they've gotten a hit or made a pitch. They they just have a lot of humility, uh, a lot of discipline, and a lot of respect not only for the game but for their opponents. Yeah. Do and as Americans, do we not? Um, why don't we spend? Uh, again, I'm asking an unfair question, but. Why don't we spend more time studying these other countries? Because as I look in baseball now, even though it's dominated uh, by U.S. players, Major League Baseball, the international game just keeps growing and growing and growing as part of the marketing strategy. But these players keep getting better and better and better from other countries. Maybe we don't have all the answers over here. Well, I think a lot of it is the hunger, the hunger to... uh you know, to compete and to get out of wherever surroundings they have, which, you know, they, they weren't maybe growing up in a very cushy lifestyle like some of our players over here are. Uh, back in my era, I say a, a lot of the baseball players came from poor rural areas, and they were just happy to get paid to play baseball, even though you had to work in the off season. But I, I think the hunger factor of, you know, we – we used to have a saying, all the Latino players, for the most part, were free swingers. And we always said, yeah, you can't walk your way off the island. You have to hit your way off the island. So uh, that's, that's what they, they, they compete. They try so hard because they want to get over here and play and get out of some of those surroundings that they've grown up with in, in other countries. And I, I think we don't have that same... Uh, we don't have that same hunger. Too. We're too soft over here. We've gotten soft somehow. Yeah. Well, you, we, we talked about, you know, hunger, discipline, the right way to act. You mentioned Bill Parcells. It's a natural segue into my, one of my favorite games, too, the Army-Navy game. And we don't necessarily see that those type of antics in there. You, you, yeah. You're a fan of the game. You're a fan of the rivalry. And I am, too. I Actually, I don't know if you knew this, but if we ever talked about it, but that's where I signed to play out of high school was Army. I played. I was recruited by, uh, by Tom Miller for basketball and Dan Roberts for baseball. And uh, one of our co-hosts, Jim Rooney, uh, on one of our other shows, Toe the Rubber, he was supposed to take an assistant coaching job there the same time I signed. So we would have had cross paths, but he got another job. I forget the, where he went. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's uh, so I, I watch the game. I, I enjoy the game. Um, I think it represents the right things. 
uh, as far as well, it really does. You know, I, I sent a, I sent an email to both Tara Sullivan and uh, Dan Shaughnessy from the Boston Globe. They wrote two very poignant articles about the, you know, the the pure, I guess I would say the the purest uh, pure athletic competition of the Army Navy game. You know, kind of the sure there's some trash talking and bannering, but uh, there's a respect for the sport and a respect for that game that we see, and uh, that that's probably the best example we have today of that kind of behavior and that kind of competition. Years ago, we had a lot of it, but not anymore. Yeah, well, they'll they'll talk openly about they. You know, that's the biggest game of the year, the Commanders Cup when they play Navy, Air Force obviously is a part of that rivalry as well but the army navy one is the one that everybody waits on but you see these kids and it couldn't have been a more fitting ending than it was this year with with a scrum for the football yeah to to, to win yeah, it that was that was great stuff so that's well that's kind of the way and i'm older than you are but that's the way i was raised on sport i can still remember glenn davis and doc blanchard who were the two big stars for army back in the late 40s the army navy game is always a big attraction yeah. And, and to, to the audience, don't be fooled by uh, there, there's some some pro talent has come through those games as well. Um, you know, Roger Staubach's quarterback. Yeah. For Navy Joe squad. Bolino was a Heisman Trophy winner. Yep. For Navy. There's a uh, and those guys for the people that don't know the history, when when you graduate from there, uh, they don't go off to lucrative contracts in regards to, uh, you know, Pro career, some of them, you know, like a David Robinson got to do it. That was an anomaly, but uh, they're, they 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 day after they graduate, they're serving our country as second lieutenants in the military, and they have a five year obligation to do so. But you, I, I liked after the game. They, they, I mean, again, they they live for that game. They they'll talk about it for generations. They'll remember whether what their record was. Even the non even the players that didn't play, like just the regular students, will know. Hey, we were two and two versus Navy during my career. Um, and uh, but at the end of the game, when they're all together on the field, uh, you know, celebrating each other's, uh, you know, uh, music and, and song and and uh, just arm in arm like that Army and Navy, how our, our country should be. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Well, what, how do you want to leave the audience today, Jim? It was a great show. We kind of in and out of free agency. We got Japan. I don't know how we segued to Army Navy, but we got there. Well, I, I just thought because it gained so much attention when I, I read the Globe every day and those two articles about how, you know, that sports the way we would dreamed it would be. So I wrote the Jim Nance line down where you use sporting event like no other. And yeah, that certainly is. But uh, I guess as baseball guys, uh, we're, we're going to look and see uh, – who signs free agents and, uh, you know, what, what their favorite team is going to look like going into next year. But I, I do wish that, uh, and maybe they talked about it at owners meetings, but I do wish that, uh, the small market owners would, uh, would make a little more noise about, uh, letting the big market teams get away with deferring all this money, um, and avoiding paying luxury tax. So, I think I think what the Otani signing, I just uh, go to that as a comment. He's going to attract uh, a lot of a lot of spectators, even when the Dodgers go on the road. But I think the real traditional baseball fans and like myself would be one of them. We don't want to see the Dodgers win. Yeah, we want to see. The teams that, uh, you know, I go back to my Cardinal team when we hit 67 home runs as a team and hit and run, steal bases, bunt, had Bruce Suter at the end of the game. I want to see a team that was put together with less than billions of dollars uh, come out on top. Uh, I guess maybe Texas this year was a little bit of that. They did have some high price. I guess, yeah, they did have a lot of high price talent. I think maybe the Giants could be the one team that, uh, could sneak in there and try to upset them because they they did it three years without spending uh, as much money as the Dodgers did. Yeah, they had a good run. And Arizona, they were the lowest payroll in Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah, that's right. Can't forget about those Diamondbacks. And I, I've, I've uh, again, I we, we, we talk about analytics uh, and we'll try to figure out what our, what the place in the game is for it. But I've always marveled at the way Tampa Bay continues to stay relevant. Um, with yeah. Yeah. 
this money. And they had some, they've had some pitching issues with injuries as everybody has, but they lost their best player this year, in my opinion, Wander Franco midstream and didn't miss a beat. Um, they, they seem to have some things figured out down there. They really do. They, uh, they're see, that's where the, that's where the people in the front office evaluating players rather than impacting on me. It may have cost them winning the world series when they, when they had the formula for taking their pitchers yeah. out after two times through the batting order, and they took Matt, uh, Blake Snell out when he was pitching like Sandy Koufax, and the Dodgers beat him. But uh, uh, I, th- I think the way they do things to evaluate talent and acquire talent in the front office is certainly to be admired. Yeah, I'm with you on that. In fact, I'm wearing my Tampa Bay hat right now, drinking my Black Elk coffee, so I'm all about <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to Teddy and see if he'd do a show with us and uh, talk about his uh, his concept for organizing a pitching staff. We'll set it up however he wants. He can take as long as he wants. We'll just press play and yeah. let you interject as you see fit, and I'll put myself on mute for the for the audience. We'll probably we'll probably wait till after the holidays and get into January when uh, when spring training is uh, you know is more a topic of conversation than it is right now. That'd be great. That'd be great. Our audience would love that. So we get that out there to our audience as a tease. But uh, thanks so much, Jim, again. You gave us, again, almost an hour today. And uh, remember, audience, Blackout Coffee, it's on the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Not just this month, but we're going to extend it through 2024. So you can get 20% off using Jim K, all capitals with the number 20 after it. We'll have new sponsors entering entering our world uh, starting in January. So we'll be adding more to each show. And uh, we have some talks with title sponsors too, so we're we're catching, we're becoming trendy out there too. Uh, we we hung on long enough to we're we're, we're trendy now. So, uh, fans, we should be we should hit that sixty thousand by today. I was hoping to by Christmas, but we're a week and a half early. Thank you for support. You guys know what to do. Five stars. Write some great comments and take a look at Ted Kubiak's book. It's on both our sh- bookshelves right now. Old school, great perspective on the game of baseball and how to field a ground ball. Again, there's not a more comprehensive. Uh, approach to how to field the ball than what Ted's put in writing. It's different than what you see on YouTube. Thank God for that. Um, but Jim, thanks so much for a great show. Episode 384, Cott's Corner with the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Thanks, Jim. We appreciate you, bud. Enjoyed it, Dave, as always. Try that again.